Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Uh, well, last week we talked about ghosts and spirits and ghouls and, and we had a spooky summer. Yeah. Uh, and I am, I am excited to hear cause I don't know, like every so often we tell each other like, I'm going to do this this week. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, I'm going to do this. And then we go, wow, good. That's cool. Or well, I can't wait. Or gee, that sounds boring. Um, we've never said that. We we've don't say that part that out loud. Boring. No. <laughs> Lauren's like Just another think- bodies of water episode. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> So I didn't realize there were so many bodies of water. <laughs> God damn it. Um, no, uh, but sometimes we know and sometimes we don't. And this is one of those weeks that I have absolutely no idea. Terrific. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, inspired by pretty much almost nothing other than the fact that sometimes this will be like a crossword clue or um, you might get it confused with the Algonquin Roundtable, which we oh. previously covered in a previous yes. episode. Um, this week we'll be talking about the Bloomsbury group. So our episode is called who's afraid of that one writer and the Bloomsbury group. So that Ooh. one writer, that one writer, Virginia, yes. Wolf, we've heard her name, you know, oh, anything, yeah. you know much about her other than, I mean, now you have a beautiful portrait of her to hang in your house. I do. I do. I, I managed to snag a beautiful portrait of her at a recent arts and treasure sale at our museum. Um, I know she was a writer. I know she was a feminist. Uh, and I know she died kind of tragically, but All that's right. about it. Well, you're going to get her whole life story and that of yes. her, her compatriots, shall we say. Great. All right. So... Adeline Virginia Stephen was born on January 25th, 1882 in South Kensington, London. She was born into a wealthy family and she was the seventh child of Leslie Stephen and Julia Jackson Duckworth Stephen. So her parents' background. That's her name. Yes. Her mother, Julia, was born in Calcutta, India to an Anglo-Indian family in 1846. And she was a favorite model of her aunt who was photographer Julia Margaret Cameron. Oh, you my might have God. heard of her. Yes. Um, and uh, Julia Cameron made more than 50 portraits of Julia Duckworth. So. Wow. She was also an artist model for pre-Raphaelite works by Edward Byrne Jones and George <gasps> Frederick Watts. You might have oh heard of. Gosh. You might have heard of the pre-Raphaelites too, Lauren. Yeah. Covered the them in, ep- in a wonderful episode earlier this season. Thank you. So um, Leslie, born in 1832, he was part of the elite intellectual aristocracy in London. So Leslie and Julia had each been married in 1875. Uh, Julia and her first husband, Herbert Duckworth, had three children. And Leslie and his first wife, Minnie Thackeray, who was the youngest daughter of author William Makepeace Thackeray. What? So yeah. So everybody... Everybody who knows everybody in their circle is like, we've heard of them. They're famous. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Super famous. So, so Leslie and his wife have a kid. Uh, Julia and her husband, Herbert, have three kids. So Julia's husband, Herbert, died in 1870 of appendicitis. And <laughs> Leslie's wife, Minnie, died in childbirth in 1875. <sighs> so Julia knew Herbert through her friendship with Minnie's older sister, Annie. And later she helped him move next door to her on Hyde Park Gate so that his baby daughter could be around her children. <laughs> okay. So she's yeah, just like, I think so. She's just like, oh, this poor widower. Like, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you and your baby like move next door to me so like we can, you know, so your baby can be around other people and children and not just you and like this you know big giant house so they then of course developed a close friendship he proposed to her and she was like like "Eh, that's that's not okay leslie like thanks but no thanks wow then when her friend annie got married then she was like well i don't want to be the only one who's not married so she was like okay sure leslie and then they finally got (laughs) married in 1878 Always a good reason yeah, to get like, married. Is my they friends live next are all door. Married. She was, you know, she would like to be married to him. Okay, so Leslie and his daughter moved in with Julia's family, and they were basically like a big, rich English Brady bunch. Their Jeez. first daughter, Vanessa, was born a year later, and at this point, Julia's like five kids. That's enough. So yeah. she wanted to quote limit her family's growth. Okay, despite mm. the fact that contraception technically existed at this time, it was let's say, a very imperfect art. Um, And the two had three more children over the next four (gasps) years. So they were like, all right, five kids, that's enough. And then 
Actually, they had like eight kids total. Bing, bang, boom. All right. Anyway, 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 back to the focus of this episode. So mm-hmm, in 1882, mm-hmm. Virginia shows up on the scene. She was okay. named after her mother's eldest sister, Adeline. So Adeline, Virginia. But after her aunt Adeline died right before Virginia was born, the family never actually used her given first name, Adeline, and instead only called her Virginia. Jeez. Okay. Yes. I don't know. Never spoke of her again. As she later described it, Virginia said that she was, quote, born into a very communicative, literate, letter writing, visiting, articulate, late 19th century world. Yeah. So along with her parents, two half brothers and a half sister from her mother and half sister from her father, Virginia had her sister, Vanessa, who was three years older. She was born in 1879. Her brother, Toby, spelled T-H-O-B-Y, was born two years before her in 1880. And she had a brother named Adrian, who was born in 1880. Okay. So early on, Virginia showed a good affinity for writing. Uh, Although both parents disapproved of formal education for females, writing was technically a respectable profession for women. Sure. And her father encouraged her to to, to keep up with this. So by the age of five, she was writing letters and she could tell her father a story every night. In February 1891, with her sister Vanessa, uh, Virginia began the Hyde Park Gate News, which chronicled life and events within their family. So at first it was mainly Vanessa's and Toby's articles, but then Virginia became the main contributor and Vanessa became the editor and they Mm. actually continued it for four years um so like yay family life um I'm gonna bring this episode down like a whole bunch of times but anyway so like a little bit of a trigger warning here with like uh, sexual abuse um Mm. later in life both Virginia and Vanessa would write about being sexually abused by their older half brothers um George Mm. and Gerald Duckworth and this this will come into play later on too yeah So Leslie Stephen, their father, his reputation as an editor and writer, his connection to William Megpeace Thackeray's family, it meant that his children were really raised in an environment filled with the influences of Victorian literary society. Mm -hmm. All right. Henry James, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Thomas Hardy, Edward Byrne Jones, and Virginia's honorary godfather, James Russell Lowell, were among the frequent visitors to their house. So, oh my God. You know. Uh, so, basically, from the time of her birth until 1895, Virginia spent her summers in St. Ives, a beach town at the very southwestern tip of England. The Stevens okay. summer home, called Tallland House, looks out on Portminster Bay and has a view of the Godrivy Lighthouse, which inspired her writing, which we'll talk more about that place in a bit. Okay. In 1895, at age 13, she had to cope with the sudden death of her mother who died from rheumatic fever, which led to her oh. first mental breakdown. Oh, Two years boy. later, her other half-sister, Stella, um, who had become essentially the head of their household, died. And that oh, was geez. that was no good for Virginia either. Yeah. So Virginia continued her studies in German, Greek, and Latin at the Ladies' Department of King's College, London. Her four years of study introduced her to a handful of radical feminists at the helm of educational reforms. Um in 1904, her father died from stomach cancer, which oh contributed to another emotional setback. So she's she's already very prone to a lot of feelings. She's yes, a lot of fragile. She's had a lot of yes, exactly. She's like for all intents and purposes, she's le- she's led this very privileged life, but she's mm-hmm. suffered abuse. She's suffered some um, mental health issues, and then like her parental figures and yep. her actual parents have died like suddenly. So. Yeah. um she after her father died she threw herself out a window and she was briefly institutionalized yes um but she you know came out of that okay in 1905 she began writing professionally as a contributor for the times literary supplement and a year later her 26 year old brother toby died from typhoid fever after a family trip to greece so her family is like I don't know kind of unlucky like everybody's like dying around her it's not great yeah um like flies it's yeah it's not good so it's basically we're down to like uh virginia her older sister vanessa and her younger brother adrian okay so basically these three they sold their family home in hyde park gate and they purchased a house in the bloomsbury area of london which is the area around the british museum uh during this period virginia met several members of the bloomsbury group a circle of intellectuals and artists nearly all the male members of the group had been at the university of cambridge with toby and um, he had actually introduced them to his sisters vanessa and virginia most of them had been apostles those were members of the quote society a select semi-secret university club for the discussion of serious questions that was founded at cambridge in the late 1820s 
Oh, brother. Yeah. Like it's, that's such like a, a like a snooty British public school. Like, like ooh, yeah, we have a, it's, we have a it's skull society. and bones, but like, but like more but about like with philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Without any of like the cool cloak and dagger kind of stuff. But it's just about like, what do you think of Kant? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so here are the members of the group. Um, Clive Bell. He was an English art critic who developed the art theory known as significant form. So that's mm. for an object to be deemed a work of art, it required the potential to provoke aesthetic emotion in its viewer. And his definition explicitly separated significant form from beauty. So an object doesn't actually need to be attractive as long as it elicits an emotional response. Mm. More about okay. five in a minute. And then we have Vanessa Bell. So Vanessa is Virginia's older sister. Um, she became an English painter and an interior designer, and she married Clive Bell. So okay. Vanessa and Clive had two sons together, Julian and Quentin, and they had a daughter named Angelica. Vanessa and Clive had an open marriage. Uh, they both took oh. lovers throughout their lives. And Vanessa had affairs with art critic Roger Fry and the painter Duncan Grant. More on Duncan in a minute. Oh, boy. In 1932, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant were commissioned to produce a dinner service for British art historian Kenneth Clark, and they produced the Famous Women Dinner Service that was okay. 50 plates painted with portraits of notable women throughout history. And the collection of 50 plates, um, it eventually passed on to a private collector, and it was actually out of public view until 2017. But the full collection was exhibited in London in early 2018. So the subjects range from Hollywood star Greta Garbo to the Queen of Sheba to Marion Bergeron, who in 1933 was the youngest ever Miss America at age 15. So her, her they're like... 50 famous women that kind of ran the gamut but it was you know really interesting and i mean for that's, yeah that's very judy chicago of them like before judy chicago you know did her thing exactly exactly that's what made me think of it um Okay, so Vanessa's married to Clive. Uh, by the way, according to historian Stanley Rosenbaum, quote, Clive Bell may indeed be the least liked member of Bloomsbury. <laughs> Bell has been found wanting by biographers and critics of the group. As a husband, a father, and especially a brother-in-law, it is undeniable that he was a wealthy snob, hedonist, a womanizer, <laughs> a racist, and an anti-Semite, <gasps> but not a homophobe who changed from... <laughs> like, don't worry, guys. He doesn't beat no his wife. Um, who changed from a liberal socialist and pacifist into a reactionary appeaser so Ugh. um so wow. vanessa married this guy and like he didn't seem like a really great guy but vanessa like don't worry guys vanessa got hers okay okay next up duncan grant british painter and designer of textiles pottery and costumes and he was also the lover of vanessa bell so duncan okay. his early affairs were actually exclusively homosexual more on this okay. in a bit. But oh it's generally assumed that Vanessa, who had fallen in love with him, succeeded in seducing him. And their sexual relationship ended in the months before their daughter Angelica was born. But they still continued to live together for more than 40 years. Um, wow. Duncan, Vanessa, and Duncan's lover, David Garnett, moved to the Sussex countryside shortly before the outbreak of the First World War. And actually, Clive would live there on weekends, you know. Of um, course. Okay, so it turns out the Vanessa's daughter, Angelica, who believed that Clive Bell was her father, actually uh -huh. was Duncan Grant's daughter. Vanessa only told her this when she turned 18. And, oh. um, and Angelica actually later wrote about this in her novel, Deceived with Kindness, published in oh. 1984. Um, in later years, his lover, poet Paul Roche, took care of him and enabled him to maintain his way of life at Charleston Farmhouse. Um, and David Roche was made the co-heir of Duncan Grant's estate, and Grant eventually died at Roche's home in 1978. Wow. Um, David Garnett, a British writer and publisher. His lifelong nickname was Bunny. <laughs> I love a, I okay. love a cutesy you know, nickname oh. on a guy. So <laughs> David Garnett is known for his works Lady into Fox, which is an allegorical fantasy and Aspects of Love on which and I... <laughs> you okay? <laughs> Here's the thing, guys. I told Lauren I wrote this episode like several weeks ago and this was like the first time I'd been seeing this in a while. <laughs> so by the way, this sentence is, uh, he also wrote Aspects of Love on which Andy L. Dubs later based a musical of the same name. <laughs> Nice job, past Julia. Yeah, past Julia. Good job. Uh, yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote wrote a musical called Aspects of Love based on David mm. Garnett's work. So, Good to know. All right. David Garnett. 
Uh, he had two sons with his first wife, Rachel, and Garnett was actually bisexual, and he had many affairs, including that with Duncan Grant. Okay? Of course. So I want, of you, course. I want you to be ready for this next part. <laughs> okay. In 1918, David Garnett was present at the birth of Grant's daughter by Vanessa Bell, named Angelica, okay. who again yes. thought that her father was Clive Bell. Shortly yeah. afterwards, David wrote to a friend, quote, I think of marrying it. When she is 20, <gasps> I shall be 46. Will it be scandalous? In no. May 1942, when no. Angelica was in her early 20s, no. she married David no. Garnett to the horror of her parents. She yes. did not find until much later that her husband had been one of her father's lovers. <laughs> ew. <laughs> ew, ew, ew. I hate it. Julia, I hate it. This this group, Lauren, everybody's just, everybody's just, Everybody's their just, stuff everybody's all mixed just, up and everybody else's. Everybody's they're just messy. fucking and dirtying. They're messy. They're so messy. No, uh, thank so, you. So David and Angelica had four daughters together. They eventually separated. Oh my however. God. Yeah. I would separate two. <sighs> yeah. However, you cannot, cannot wash yourself of that. That no. your actual father <sighs> was the lover of your Husband's, husband. Who was significantly older than you. Yes. And locked eyes on you. Like in Twilight, I like, think of marrying it. It, not even it. her, not even her. It's so that's so much a what's the name of the baby in Twilight? Bella is is a is a boot or whatever. You know, I didn't like see Twilight. You know, I didn't read the Twilight. Portmanteau name. Is yeah, it? Oh, I, you know what though? Was it like Renesme or something? Yes, it was Renesme. Uh, why is this in my brain? <laughs> Oh. All right, back to the Bloomsbury group. Yeah, this, I'm sorry. This much more crazy, awful. Okay, and I feel like I feel like our, our stories with them get a little tamer from here on out. Okay, so, good. Lighton Strachey, um, as name is spelled L-Y-T-T-O-N-S-T-R-A-C-H-E-Y. He was an English writer and critic. He was the author of Eminent Victorians and Queen Victoria, published in 1918 and 1921. Um, so Lighton identified as homosexual, but had a lifelong open platonic relationship with the artist Dora Carrington, who was known oh, as yeah. Carrington. Yes, okay. I do There's know her. All her. these artists everywhere. So, um, Strachey fell in love with a man named Ralph Partridge, who had fallen in love with Carrington. So, Carrington and Ralph got married, and then they all lived together at Hamspray House in Wiltshire. <laughs> Lighton, of course, also had affairs with Duncan Grant, who was related to him somehow. Definitely <gasps> cousins. Not sure Gross. how number cousins. <sighs> Uh, Strachey died of stomach cancer at age 51 in 1932 and it is reported that his final words were if this is dying then I don't think much of it like is that like oh, oh. is that like I don't care for this <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like it and then Carrington committed suicide two months after Lighten died <gasps> so like all this tragedy and everybody is going falling on? in love with all these people that don't actually want to have sex with them and it's oh it's Bloomsbury baby <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's All like right. it's Chinatown, Jake. Yeah. It's Bloomsbury, baby. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Another guy, John Maynard Keys. You've heard of him before. He's the yes. English economist. Um, basically his ideas like fundamentally changed macroeconomics. Like he's sure. he's probably like one of the most important people in this group <laughs> that people don't talk about because everybody else is just fucking each other. Um so John Maynard Keys, he knew a lot of these guys from Cambridge. One of his great loves with Duncan Grant. I mean, I've seen a picture of Duncan Grant. Like, he's not George Clooney. I don't understand <laughs> why. Maybe, <laughs> to borrow a phrase, maybe he was very funny. <laughs> you know? Maybe he was just hilarious. Maybe. That was it. Yeah. Um, so John Maynard Keys ended up marrying Lydia Lopakova, who is a well-known mm. Russian ballerina and one of the stars of Sergei Dialev's Ballet Russe. Okay. Also in their group, E.M. Forster, the English fiction writer mm -hmm. whose works included A Room with a View, Howard's End, and A Passage to India. Yep. I don't have any dish on if E.M. Forster oh, was that's too bad. involved <laughs> in any of the people in this group. Roger Fry, the English painter and art critic, he actually coined the term post-impressionism. Oh. Um, and he raised awareness of modern art in Great Britain. And he founded the experimental design collective Omega Workshops, um, which was around from okay. 1913 to 1919, which was supposed to remove divisions between decorative and fine arts. So uh, similar to what they were doing with... Um, what's those, what's those guys, the arts and crafts people, the... 
the stuff with the arts and crafts people. The arts, you know. arts and crafts? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. You know, right? Like, you know, that like, there's like that there shouldn't be a big division between like decorative art and fine art. Yes. It yeah. should be all one thing. Yeah. yeah it's all art, baby. Yeah. Um, and then we have Leonard Wolf, who is a British political theorist, publisher, and author. And then Virginia Woolf. Okay. Oh, my God. So other members included Desmond McCarthy, Arthur Whaley, Saxon Sidney Turner, Robert Trevelyan, Francis Burrell, J.T. Shepard, Raymond Mortimer, and sculptor Stephen Tomlin, as well as mm. Bertrand Russell, Aldous Huxley, and T.S. Eliot, who were sometimes associated with the group. But, um, you know, they kind of drifted in and out, everybody. Yeah. So the group not only met in their homes in Bloomsbury, central London, but also at countryside retreats. Um, there are two significant ones near Lewes in Sussex, the Charleston farmhouse where Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant moved in 1916, and Monk's house in Rodmill, which was owned by Virginia and Leonard Wolfe starting in 1919. The lives and works of the members show an overlapping, interconnected similarity of ideas and attitudes mm, that yeah. help to keep the friends and relatives together. In the words of the philosopher and their contemporary G.E. Moore, quote, one's prime objects in life were love, the creation and enjoyment of aesthetic experience, and the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, basically, they all really liked art for art's sake, and they sure. tried to get the maximum pleasure out of life. So basically, their ethos really encouraged a liberal approach to sexuality in that regard, yeah, too. Uh, you think? Yeah. Um, going back a couple years, the, in 1910, members of the Bloomsbury group pulled off the dreadnought hoax. Have you heard of this? I Oh, I have a vague recollection uh -huh. of this. All right. So the yeah. dreadnought hoax. To back up a little more, while at Cambridge, Adrian Stephen and his friend Horace Devere Cole put together a fake state visit of the eighth Sultan of Zanzibar to the town of Cambridge by borrowing robes and makeup from the theater department and going on a tour. Uh, then they admitted the practical joke the next day, but it was like... You know, it was really funny because, you yeah. know, they they tricked the campus into thinking that they were here from Zanzibar. From Zanzibar, and, yeah. yeah. So uh, five years later, Adrian Stephen, Horace Cole, Virginia Stephen, Duncan Grant, and two other guys had themselves disguised with elaborate costumes and turbans and stage makeup oh, as a delegation of Abyssinian royalty who wished to tour the HMS Dreadnought, which was Britain's most technologically advanced battleship. Oh, boy. Um, so on the day that their telegram arrived, the Navy welcomed the princes with an honor guard. Uh, they couldn't find an Abyssinian flag, so the Navy proceeded to use a Zanzibar flag, and they played Zanzibar's national anthem. The group okay, of delegates, enough, yeah, <laughs> they inspected the fleet, and to show their appreciation, they communicated in a gibberish of words that were drawn from oh Latin and God. Greek. Um, Adrian and Virginia's cousin, Willie Fisher, was a commander on the dreadnought, and he actually failed to recognize his own relatives. Wow. So later, like... The people in London were like, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. You guys did what? So the prank, it was uncovered in London. And Horace Cole contacted the press and sent a photo of the, quote, princes to the Daily Mirror. Oh, my so gosh. The, it's a really crazy photo. I mean, it's not great. Like, they're in blackface. Like, we're, sure, clearly, yeah, not, I mean, we're clearly not yeah. condoning this. But it was, it was an incident, of course. Um, sure. And this ended up being kind of kind of humiliating for the navy because like yeah, having yeah. this showpiece battleship at the heart of a hoax like this especially during the height of the arms race between britain yeah. and germany was like you know a, a real deal. like boom yeah someone got fired yeah but anyway it was the bloomsgrave group that um that pulled off the dreadnought hoax mm. so virginia and leonard wolf they got married in 1912 Great. Oh, good. Um, it wasn't until after that that Leonard first became aware of Virginia's mental health issues. Um, a year after they got married, she made a suicide attempt overdosing on a barbiturate because she didn't want to return to a private institution for, quote, women with nervous disorders. Mm -hmm. So she later realized that writing was one of the behaviors that allowed her to cope with her illness. She wrote of hearing voices that prevented her from concentrating on anything. Mm -hmm. Doctors kept proposing that she live a quiet life without any physical or mental exertion. But well, Modern day experts have examined her writing and they kind of contend that her illness was likely bipolar disorder. Yeah. Yeah. But they were like, yep, yeah, we shouldn't, you shouldn't exert your, like just basically like shuffle Lion. from your chair to your bed and like yeah, line stare out room. your window. Don't yeah. think too much. You're very delicate. But yeah, not Virginia, not her writing actually you know helped her get through this so yeah. her first novel was released in 1915 as the voyage out um the original working title was called melambrosia 
Uh, Wolf mm. used the book to experiment with several literary tools, including compelling and unusual narrative perspectives, dream states, and free association prose. Um, two years later, the Wolfs bought a used printing press and they established Hogarth Press, which was their own publishing house operated out of their home. Oh, wow. um, Virginia and Leonard published some of their writing as well as the work of Sigmund Freud, Catherine Mansfield, and T.S. Eliot. A year after the end of World War I, the Wolfs purchased Monk's House, which was a cottage in the village of Rodmill in 1919. And that same year, Virginia published Night and Day, a novel set in Edwardian England. Her third novel, Jacob's Room, was published by Hogarth in 1922, and it was based on her brother Toby, and it was considered a significant departure from her earlier novels with its modernist elements. That year, she met author, poet, and landscape gardener Vita Sackville West, mm -hmm. the wife of English diplomat Harold Nicholson. And Virginia and Vita began a friendship that developed into a romantic affair. We'll more on that in a bit. Um, yeah. So in 1925, Wolf received rave reviews from Mrs. Dalloway, her fourth novel. So mm -hmm. this story interweaved interior monologues and raised issues of feminism, mental illness, and homosexuality in post-World War I England. It was adapted into a 1997 film starring Vanessa Redgrave and inspired The Hours, the 1998 novel by Michael Cunningham and oh, right. its 2002 adaptation. Mm -hmm. So uh, Virginia's 1928 novel To the Lighthouse was another critical success and considered revolutionary for its stream of consciousness storytelling. The plot is for this kind of thin um, in it, the Ramsey family and their guests are on vacation and they decide to delay a trip to a nearby lighthouse for another time. Uh oh. <laughs> what? That's it guys. That's the story. You know what? <laughs> We're too tired to go to the lighthouse today. We'll go again. We'll go again another time. Um, I don't know. Stream of consciousness doesn't do it for me. No, it's a, it was something that was very hot during a very specific time period. You know, it, it really linked up with like the whole like Dada-esque and, you know, surrealism and that kind of thing. It appeals to a very specific kind of thinker and reader. And it is not for it's me. It's not for me. But they consider this to be her most autobiographical novel, um, mm. basing the work the books, um, Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey on her parents and other characters on her sister, Vanessa, and brother Adrian. Mm. Um, but Wolf has also said the lighthouse doesn't symbolize anything. It's just a place to visit, guys. It's just a place. Mm. Don't look into this. Not yeah. anything. Sometimes mm. a lighthouse is just a lighthouse. It's not always a penis. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I mean, I would argue death of the author, but we're not going to get into this on your episode of this podcast. <laughs> so as I mentioned, Wolf found a literary muse in Vita Sackville West. Um, mm -hmm. She was the inspiration for Wolf's 1928 novel, Orlando, which oh, follows yeah. a 30-year-old English nobleman who wakes up one day as a woman and lives on for over three centuries of English history. Yeah. So the novel is a breakthrough for Wolf, who received critical praise for the groundbreaking work, along with a newfound level of popularity. So how did Vita fit into this? Uh, Vita mm -hmm. enjoyed cross-dressing, and she gave herself a backstory as a wounded war soldier named Julian. Ooh. So that's, you know, she would that's go out fun. in public and, you know, tell these tales while she was cross-dressing and she really had a lot of fun with it. So the book was described by Sackville West's son, Nigel Nicholson, as, quote, the longest and most charming love letter in literature. Oh, wow. Um, so they were, you know, they were together for, for some time. I feel like Leonard was fine with it because it yeah. helped Virginia's mental state mental health um mm -hmm. yeah so the two actually later ended their relationship in like totally in 1935 over the imminent war vita was a big oh. fan of rearmament while virginia remained a pacifist so mm. that was Politics. A, that was a big deal in 1929 wolf published a room of one's own a feminist mm -hmm. essay based on lectures she'd given at women's colleges in which she examines women's role in literature. And in the work, she sets forth the idea that, quote, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Mm. In this, she creates the character Judith Shakespeare, the sister of the bard. So basically, while William gets to further his education and live up to his potential, sure. Judith has to stay at home and eventually marry for convenience. Mm. Tale as old as time. Wolf pushed narrative boundaries in her next work, The Waves, in 1931, which hmm. she described as a play poem written in the voices of six different characters. The thing about oh. this is it doesn't switch perspectives between chapters. Each character uh -oh. just kind of narrates their version of whatever's happening and their reaction to whatever's happening all at once. Oh, boy. 
That seems tough to read. Yeah, I, yep, I agree. Uh, (laughs) So basically, there's like a really piecemeal portrait of a very ambiguous plot. And the narration is punctuated with lyrical descriptions of the sea and sky, making it seem like a play at times and a poem at others. So just something for people looking for advanced reading here. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Something to really... Not not really a beach read, despite the name, the waves. Yeah. Um, and Wolf published The Years, which was the final novel published in her lifetime in 1937. It was about a family's history over the course of a generation. That mm. following year, she published Three Guineas, which was an essay that continued the feminist themes of a room of one's own and addressed fascism and war. The Bloomsbury Group, everybody in their messy, messy stories, um, sure, they survived yeah. World War One, but by the early 1930s, they actually ceased to exist in their original form having by that time merged with the great intellectual life of London. Um, Throughout her career, Wolfe spoke regularly at colleges and universities. She wrote dramatic letters and moving essays and self-published a long list of short stories. Mm. By her mid-40s, she had established herself as an intellectual, an innovative and influential writer and pioneering feminist. Her ability to balance dreamlike scenes with deeply tense plot lines earned her incredible respect from peers and the public alike. And despite her outward success, she continued to regularly suffer from debilitating bouts of depression and dramatic Mm. mood swings. Wolf's husband, Leonard, was always by her side. Mm -hmm. He was quite aware of any signs that pointed to his wife's descent into depression. And he saw as she was working on what would be her final manuscript called Between the Acts that was published in 1941, he could see that she was sinking into deepening despair. At the time, World War II was raging on and the couple decided if England was invaded by Germany, they would commit suicide together, fearing that Leonard, who was Jewish, would be in particular danger. Sure, yeah. So in 1940, the couple's London home was destroyed during the Blitz, which was the Germans bombing the city. Virginia was unable to cope with her despair. On March 28, 1941, Virginia pulled on her overcoat, filled its pockets with stones, and walked into the River Ouse. As she waded into the water, the stream took her with it, and the authorities found her body three weeks later. Oh, no. Leonard Wolf had her cremated, and her remains were scattered at their home monk's house. Um, I did see the walking stick that she left on the beach when she walked into the sea at the New York public library has it in their permanent collection. And they currently have a permanent collection exhibition going on right now. We were in New York in early May and they have, you know, they have a Shakespeare's first Mm -hmm. folio and they have a Gutenberg Bible and they have, you know, all the toys that Christopher Robin owned that Aww. were all the, the yeah, that was very sweet. There was the Eeyore and the Winnie the Pooh and yeah. the Piglet and everything. They're very cute. But they had a cane and they're like, this is Virginia Woolf's cane that she left on the beach that her husband found after she like <sighs> walked into the sea and put stones in her pockets. Like it was affecting. It was very wow. disturbing to see for sure. Yep. And that, and that's the end of Virginia Woolf, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you might have, you know, in pop culture today, the, the mm-hmm. play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, it's a 1962 play by Edward Albee and examines mm-hmm. the complexities and marriage of a middle-aged couple, Martha and George, and a young married couple, Nick and Honey, that they invited back to their home for a drink after a faculty party at the college where George teaches. The title came to Edward Albee by way of graffiti he saw in a Greenwich Village bar bathroom, which he thought oh. of as a fitting parody of the song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf from Disney's The Three Little Pigs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Who's yeah, Afraid of, of the Big Bad Wolf? Um, so Virginia Woolf has nothing to do with this play like no. at all. <laughs> it's not about being afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf, but of the authentic life she championed in her life and works. And it was adapted into a 1966 film starring Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, George mm-hmm. Segal, and Sandy Dennis. And both Liz and Sandy won Oscars for that. As well they should. As I mentioned earlier, The Hours, a 1998 novel by Michael mm-hmm. Cunningham, won the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and was adapted to the Oscar-winning film in 2002, starring Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, and Julianne Moore. I mean, didn't Nicole Kidman win an Oscar for popping on that Everything, fake nose? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she they you know put some seamless uh, silicone on her face and everyone went, oh, she's Virginia Woolf. Oh, my goodness. Transformed. Fat transformed. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a show called Life in Squares, which was a British television miniseries that was broadcast on BBC Two in July and August 2015. Uh, so the title comes from Dorothy Parker's witticism that the Bloomsbury group, whose life it portrays, had, quote, lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. Uh, that's very good. I oh, she's Dorothy. so witty. I love Dorothy. Uh, 
And for more on Dorothy, check out episode 87, Dorothy Parker and the Vicious Circle. It's very good. That's about the Algonquin Roundtable, who is so much tamer than the Bloomsbury group when you Uh, think about it. Yeah. Yep. And also um, in pop culture, there's Gloomsbury, which was a BBC Radio 4 comedy sitcom that gently parodied the lives, loves, and works Mm. of Bloomsbury group. Um, There were five series in like 2012, 2014, 2015, 2017, and 2018. So that's another fun thing to check out. But so much drama. Yeah. Well, I mean, leave it to the British to take the piss out of, you know, something that was like, you know, a, a group of people who had a lot of drama, but also influenced you know, art and literature and <laughs> economics and <laughs> you know, they're like, whatever. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. They were all a big deal. That was cool. That was good. Thank you. I learned so much. I had there's, no idea about all that juicy. Hot there's guy. a lot more. There's a lot of juicy. There's a lot of juicy in those memoirs. Yeah, I bet. Mm. I right. mean, much more than we could encapsulate in an episode, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, all right. Our quiz is called In Bloom. This is a quiz where every answer contains the name of a flower. Ooh, okay. Question one. Which novel written by Stephen Chbosky follows an introverted teenager named Charlie through his freshman year of high school in a Pittsburgh suburb? It was later adapted into a film version starring the lead of the Percy Jackson films and the smartest student at Hogwarts. Question two. Owned by Nestle since... 1985, which brand of food products is best known for its evaporated milk, malted milk, and instant breakfast? Question three, which literary and film character was doomed by her desire to be the first human to try a chewing gum that tasted like a three-course meal of tomato soup, roast beef, and blueberry pie? Question four, in 1859, a French chemist patented a new aniline dye, which he named after a flower that was named by a French botanist after a 16th century German botanist. Got that? The dye was later renamed to celebrate the French army's victory at the Battle of Magenta. But what's the original name of this hard to spell purpley red? Question five. Why don't they just get a cup? <laughs> John Steinbeck's classic novel set during the Great Depression, the Joad family set out from Oklahoma to California in the Grapes of Wrath. What's the name of the eldest Joad daughter who offers her breast milk to a stranger dying of starvation? Question six. Which Greek mythological figure is the messenger of the gods and the personification and goddess of the rainbow? Question seven. Get ready to break out the champagne supernova and just roll with it. Some might say, well, actually, it is true that this 1995 album gave us the first song from the 1990s to reach 1 billion streams on Spotify in 2020. I wonder, Wall, if you can tell me the name of this album, which fits the theme of this quiz. Question 8. Kate Blanchett has won two Academy Awards. The first was for portraying Katherine Hepburn in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, and the other was for playing a disgraced Manhattan socialite in which Woody Allen joint? Question 9. What is the sanguine derogatory term for a deeply caring person with left-wing views? And finally, question 10. If the successor of King William III of Great Britain in Ireland owned some delicate fabric made of threads in an open web-like pattern from Chantilly, what would that technically be called? I'll give you a minute to think about it and be back with your answers. Those are very good. I'm I'm missing a couple, but I think you think you can get there. I think I can get there. I think I think with some 
Okay. With some, with some hints. Okay. <laughs> All right, question one. Which novel written by Stephen Chbosky follows an introverted teenager named Charlie through his freshman year of high school in a Pittsburgh suburb? It was later adapted into a film version starring the lead of the Percy Jackson films and the smartest student at Hogwarts. Uh, That's the perks of being a wallflower. You are correct. Wallflowers are annuals, herbaceous perennials, or subshrubs, a.k.a. bushes. This genus is also called (laughs) (laughs) erisimum. AKA, AKA bushes. bushes in your fucking face. <laughs> and it's so funny because I like, again, like I said, I wrote this episode a few weeks before we recorded it. And like, there's, uh, I'm reading these questions. And I was like, I really thought I already asked Lauren this question. Like, <laughs> like I'm like panicking that I was like, did I like co- copy this into another episode? No, I just, no, you just spent a lot of time back. with it and then haven't thought about it yeah. since. All right, <laughs> question two. Owned by Nestle since 1985, which brand of food products is best known for its evaporated milk, malted milk, and instant breakfast? Uh, yeah, as children, we referred to it as its full name, which is Carnation Instant Breakfast. <laughs> so it's Carnation. It is Carnation. Yep. Um, so the Carnation Milk Company was founded in Washington State in 1899, and the owner, Elbridge Stewart, believed that high-quality milk came from happy, healthy cows, right? So he established a cow breeding farm named Carnation Farm, where testing out new principles of animal husbandry continued and they improved the productivity of the herd. In December oh. 1920, a cow named Sigis Peteri Prospect, a Holstein cow, also known as oh. Possum Sweetheart, broke the world's record for the most milk produced in one year. Okay? Oh, my God. So at the time, an average cow produced 4,000 pounds of milk in a year. Like, that sounds okay. like a lot, right? Yeah, that's a lot. And But during the previous 365 days at, cow, at Carnation Farm... This cow called Possum Sweetheart produced 37,361 no. <gasps> pounds of milk. That's like almost 10 times as much. As she must have been like a normal skin cow. and bones, that poor girl. Or she was just super happy. Maybe she maybe, was fat and happy and like just really was. good at really good at milk. I don't maybe know. she's just real good at milk. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't ascribe any sense of tra- you know, right. tragedy to her. Yeah, yeah. Maybe isn't she was that just crazy? It's just life. like, whoa, carnation. It's like, you know. What's up? Um, also, yeah. I feel like they renamed the the town in Washington State where it was founded to Carnation. So that's yeah, what, I mean, well, I yeah, have a lot to owe them. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Question three: Which literary and film character was doomed by her desire to be the first human to try a chewing gum that tasted like a three course meal of tomato soup, roast beef, and blueberry pie? Well, Violet is turning Violet. Violet, that's Violet Beauregard. Absolutely. Of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. slash Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory fame. She is the chewing gum obsessed lucky winner of a golden ticket. And when she reaches the, the you know, she's she she's like, ah, I got to try this. I love gum. Right? See? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Aha. <laughs> See? And she reaches uh, the flavors of the blueberry pie in the gum and her skin starts to turn indigo blue and she swells mm-hmm. up into a huge blueberry with just like arms and legs sticking out. And the Oompa Loompas have to roll her down to the juicing room. While singing a song about her. Of well, of course. Of course. Yeah. And, and Wonka's like, this always happens when they get to the blueberry. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, damn it, lost another one. Classic. All right, question four. In 1859, a French chemist patented a new aniline dye, which he named after a flower that was named by a French botanist after a 16th century German botanist. Got that? So the dye was later renamed to celebrate the French army's victory at the Battle of Magenta. But what's the original name of this hard to spell purpley red? I mean, the only the first thing that came to mind that's also a flower is fuchsia. Yeah, that's it. Oh, great. Yay. Yes. Um, and if you have as much trouble as I do trying to spell this word, remember that it was named for the botanist Leinhard Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. Mm-hmm. And then it's like his name with an I-A at the end. Because I always yes. I always put like an S before yeah. the C and then I like leave out the H and it's just a lot. Yeah, it's, just it's a, a mess. But yeah, color names are, are fascinating to learn about. They really are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Question five. <laughs> Why didn't they just get a cup? That's what I said. That's what I'm saying. John Steinbeck's classic novel said during the Great Depression, the Jode family set out from Oklahoma to California in the Grapes of Wrath. What's the name of the eldest Jode daughter who offers her breast milk to a stranger dying of starvation? Oh, boy. Um, it has been a long time since I've read it, obviously. 
because they didn't get a cup and I just never went back. Um, so I'm going to guess Rose. I need a full name. Oh, shoot. Rose Judd? Rosemary Judd. Her name is Rose of Sharon. Rose of Sharon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I remember. Yes. <laughs> Rose of Sharon. And I have no flavor text for this. I was just relying on Lawrence <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> once again. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, it's a simple solution. Get a cup. You didn't have to breastfeed the man. I mean, I know it's a symbol. I get it. But <laughs> in practical terms, I just, for everybody involved, it's just easier and less weird. It's just, it's just less weird, okay? I mean, in general. All right. Question six. <laughs> Which Greek mythological figure is the messenger of the gods and the personification and goddess of the rainbow? Ugh. See, I knew this at one point, and you said messenger of the gods, and I was like, oh, that's Hermes. But that's not it, because Hermes is a dude. Um, rainbow. I don't have I don't have a guess for this. I don't know who she is. Who is she? Goddess of the rainbow is Iris. Iris. Oh, of course. What a beautiful name that is. She's frequently mentioned as a divine messenger in the Iliad, which is attributed to Homer. She doesn't, however, appear in the Odyssey. Instead, that role is filled by Hermes there. And like Hermes, Iris carries a caduceus or a winged staff. Mm -hmm. So Iris is represented either as a rainbow or as a beautiful young maiden with wings on her shoulders. And as a goddess, Iris is associated with communication, messengers, the rainbow, and new endeavors. And this personification of a rainbow was once described as being a link to the heavens and earth. In some texts, she's depicted as wearing a coat of many colors. And with this coat, she creates the rainbows she rides to get from place to place, which is, that's kind of a fun thing to think about. That's fun, yeah, I would do that. All right, question seven. Get ready to break out the champagne supernova and just roll with it. Some might say, well, actually, it is true that this 1995 album gave us the first song from the 1990s to reach 1 billion streams on Spotify in 2020. I wonder, Wall, if you can tell me the title of this album, which fits the theme of this quiz. Uh, That's What's the Story, Morning Glory. You are correct. Bye, Oasis. Mm -hmm. This is the fifth... This is the number five best-selling album of all time in the United Kingdom. Wow. After Queen's Greatest Hits, 1981. Sure. Gold. Greatest Hits by ABBA, 1992. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 1967 mm-hmm. by the Beatles, and 21 by Adele in 2011. I mean, they really love her over there. Not they, that we don't love yeah. her. Oh, they, they love her really a lot. They really her. love her a lot. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yes, the What's the Story Morning Glory certified 16 times platinum. Wow. It's a great album. That's so many. It's I mean, it album. is. I mean, they're both the brothers uh, are not great people, but... Oasis was a good band. Yeah. 1985 was a good album. What can I say? Yeah. All right. Question eight. Kate Blanchett has won two Academy Awards. The first was for portraying Catherine Hepburn in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. And the other was for playing a disgraced Manhattan socialite in which Woody Allen joint? I didn't realize she won an Oscar for this because I feel like this movie was really just a blip. It, this was Blue Jasmine. It was Blue Jasmine. She won yeah. Best Supporting Actress in 2004 what? for The Aviator and Best Actress in 2013 for playing Jasmine Francis, the widow of a Bernie Madoff type who defrauded his clients. I feel like the title didn't really like give me any kind no. of hint at all about what the movie would be about. No, definitely not. Question nine. What is the sanguine derogatory term for a deeply caring person with left-wing views? A deeply, okay, sanguine, Mm -hmm. deeply caring person with left-wing views. That is a weeping willow. No, um, that's a tree. A... Oh, 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 bleeding heart, bleeding heart. You're correct. Yep, bleeding heart. Or a bleeding heart liberal. Um, Bleeding hearts, a term that had been around for centuries, was first used in the political sense back in the 1930s by Westbrook Pelgar, a journalist who was a frequent critic of FDR's programs. He believed that the Democratic Party was using a humanitarian facade to win votes and rouse people's emotions without addressing real problems. Uh, Today, the term is often used as an insult, um... Usually a, quote, bleeding heart liberal is someone who wants social programs and government safety nets to care for the poor. Oh, also a flower. (laughs) (laughs) Also a flower. Also Um, a beautiful flower, actually. Yeah. (laughs) 
And finally, question 10. If the successor of King William III of Great Britain and Ireland owned some delicate fabric made of threads in an open web-like pattern from Chantilly, what would that technically be called? That is called Queen Anne's Lace. You got it. Um, So lace arrived in France when Catherine de' Medici, newly married to King Henry II of 1533, brought Venetian lace makers to her new homeland. So the French royal court and the fashions popular there influenced the lace that started to be made in France. It was delicate and graceful compared to the heavier needle or point laces of Venice. Examples of French lace are Alençon, Argentin, and Chantilly. And Chantilly lace is a handmade bobbin lace named after the city of Chantilly in a tradition dating from the 17th century. And I I found this interesting. The best Chantilly laces were made of silk and were generally black. Oh, not interesting. White, which made them huh. very suitable for morning wear, obviously. Yes. Mm-hmm. So those were usually your best dresses. Yeah, yeah. just beautiful. Yeah. Cool. This Great. was a very good quiz. Good Thanks. job, Cass Julia. Yeah, Cass Julia. <laughs> <laughs> I made myself laugh a couple times reading. You're like, reading I'm hilarious. <laughs> this is great. Oh, so yeah, great, great job. job. Good job, everybody. Thanks for Thanks. listening. Hope you know the Bloomsbury group now. Keep them separate from the Algonquin Roundtable. Yeah, and I they were on different continents. They ran in different decades. You know, yeah, but it's a whole. They were completely different and separate. <laughs> um, I should post a picture of my portrait of Virginia. Yes, absolutely, very lovely piece. Um, I was so pleased, and I kept walking around the. Like I bought it and then I was walking around looking at other things and people kept going, oh, you got Virginia. Oh my gosh. That's such a pretty portrait. I was like, yeah, I did. I scored it. Yep. Yep. That was all me. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) I picked this up and purchased it. Yes. You're, you are correct. It was a lot of Uh, work. You're welcome. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's my talent. (laughs) I'm an art historian. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, (laughs) um, Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Yeah. And we'll catch you in two weeks. Yep. Bye. Bye.